Welcome to the Israel Bible Podcast. My name is Cindy Parker, and I am an author, a speaker, and a professor of Holy Land Studies at the Israel Bible Center. I am passionate about reading the Bible in the physical, historical, and cultural context of its day. And I really love having geeky conversations with people about new things, which is why I love this podcast in which I get to sit down each week with other faculty members of IBC to discover new aspects of the Bible. These are some of my favorite dialogues because as a modern audience reading an ancient text, we know that the Bible does not need to be rewritten, but it needs to be reread. I am joined again this week by Pinchas Shir, who is the Associate Professor of Ancient Cultures, and we are here to talk about his course, The Stories of Jewish Christ Among the Rabbis. Last week, we talked about the role of the rabbi in the first century, and then we barely dipped into the subject of rabbinic materials, starting with what the Mishnah is and how it was formed. If you missed that conversation, go back and listen to that one first. It is super helpful for understanding how Jesus compared to other rabbis in his day. Last week, we talked about how the Mishnah was a collection and the written down discussions of rabbis on all sorts of various topics about life, about scripture and interpretation, sometimes parables, and then all sorts of sermons. And now we continue. So that's the first sort of say rabbinic document that we have written down that's really is a lore from way back but then we have the gemara gemara is the next level that comes and so after mishnah was written down many of the rabbinic academies had that text they made it their foundation for teaching tradition and so there were two major centers in judaism in that era one was in babylon and one was in israel and so they developed their own commentary on the mishnah so now Mishnah is a commentary on all things in life. And then now you have a commentary on top of commentary. So commentary on commentary is the Gemara. Gemara, Gemara, Gemara means to complete or to finish. So uh, Mishnah is a repetition. So I am repeating what I heard others say. That's the tradition. So Gemara is the completion of that process, essentially, where the other commentators look at the Mishnah and say, oh, they forgot this. Oh, they also didn't mention that. And this fact should be brought in as well because my rabbi also taught this about this and this and that. And they start compounding a little bit more knowledge, a little bit more information, adding another layer to the discussion that maybe wasn't there by the original compilers. And so that process really takes place into like the third, fourth, fifth century. So we have the Gemara uh, that is written in Galilee at that era because Jewish center of learning is pushed out of Jerusalem. Jews are not really living in Jerusalem anymore. So it's that really dark time where Jews are forced to live on the outskirts, sort of say. And so Galilee becomes the place where there's a lot of academies and they produce their own version of what we call the Talmud. Gemara is the commentary in the Mishnah and together they make the Talmud. So we have two versions. We have the Jerusalem Talmud or uh, some people call it Palestinian Talmud, but it really is Galilean work. Essentially, it is originating in the land of Israel. And that commentary, together with the Mishnah, I don't know, maybe about 1,500 pages or so of commentary. It's a lot. But then we have another version called the Babylonian version. 
And that one is like 2,700 pages. It's almost <laughs> twice as long. And it covers a lot more ground. So when a lot of times you hear people say Talmud, what they really mean is Mishnah and Gemara. And mo most of the time, what they really mean is the Babylonian version of the Gemara. So you have the same Mishnah, the same original, sort of say, telling of the stories. But then there's commentary on top of that commentary, the Gemara. That is two different varieties, the Jerusalem and the Babylonian. So that's Jerusalem Talmud, Babylonian Talmud. Most people like, prefer the Babylonian Talmud because it's bigger, it's fuller, it's more extensive. So every time somebody says a Talmud, 99% of the time, they mean the Babylonian Talmud. But Jerusalem Talmud is just as valuable. It's very early tradition. Jerusalem Talmud was written down. The Gemara, the Jerusalem version was written down probably third or fourth century. So it's actually earlier. It's older than the Babylonian version. So as far as a historian, we always look for the older, the better, because the other versions are tend to borrow from, from all sorts of places as well. So that's rabbinic literature. That's the major, major rabbinic literature that a lot of times the scholars look at and mine and look for connections and try to find these uh, stones or say touchstones for antiquity. How do we understand these ancient texts? Well, we look into the culture. How did these other people understand their own texts? That's what the rabbinic literature brings into the study. As someone who is fascinated by geography and how geography ends up affecting us, aside from, well, you mentioned the Babylonian Talmud is much larger and then is maybe not as old as the Jerusalem Talmud, but can we see ways in which the geography, the fact that the Babylonian Talmud is up in Mesopotamia among the diaspora, do we see it affecting the writings? I mean, they are different. I mean, if you were really to compare them, and the best way to compare them is actually pick the same passage. You pick the same Mishnah, and then you look at the commentary that these rabbis wrote, and then you look at the commentaries these rabbis wrote. The Babylonian commentary is way more sophisticated, for one thing, and they had more academies, and their community was not as suppressed. And so, in many ways, they were flourishing in a much more powerful way than uh, those who lived in Israel. But there's also respect for some of the sages from Israel at the same time. So there's a very interesting balance of relationship. And the language is different, I have to say. The language is different because people who live in Babylon tend to rely much more on Aramaic. So you kind of have, when you start coming to the actual texts, you know, not in translation original, you realize that you really need to know much more Aramaic to get this part. And so, and so for me personally, Aramaic is not my strong suit. So this is when I start looking at dictionaries a lot more because uh, I'm, I'm recognizing the roots, but I'm not quite understanding how they're forming a sentence as well. And I'm struggling to understand it a lot of times. So language changes. We move much more from Hebrew into more this mixture of Hebrew and Aramaic together. And so I'm sure there's cultural influences, but yeah, the two Talmuds are, are different uh, and they, they do discuss some of the same issues in a slightly different way. And it does reflect your geography and the circumstances in which they were written. Okay, so as we're defining terms, there's another term that would be the Midrash. Can you explain what Midrash actually is? Okay, Midrash is like a sermon. It is a genre, and it appears in all sorts of places. I mean, I think uh, a lot of the sermons that Jesus gives could be classified perhaps as a Midrash. I don't know, maybe. From my perspective, at least, they sound a lot like it. So when you study the Midrash, the rabbis like to tell these stories. And the stories do not always have to be, I mean, this is where the parables come in a lot. The stories do not always have to be realistic. They don't have to be historical. 
It may be fictional, you know, about a fox and eagle or something like that, you know, talking to each other. Well, we know that doesn't happen in real life. But the point of the Midrash, there's a story behind it. There is a point that they want to drive. There is an aha. There's a gotcha. There's that final moral. It's like the Aesop's fable. It has that underlining teaching that you're supposed to bring out. And it usually has to do with the way we live life or with some kind of great lesson or, or principle of life that we're supposed to adopt and it would enhance our life. And so a lot of times it, it is basically built on a scripture, but then it expand, expands that understanding and allows us to see something more. That's what a midrash is. It's like a good sermon, essentially. Uh, and so a lot of times people grab onto the midrash. There's a massive amount of literature in uh, in Jewish tradition is called Midrash. And, it, and some of it is much, much later in history. So the classic Midrash basically ends in like fifth uh, century. And then from then on, and continues and it flourishes into medieval times and on and on. And so people grab on to these commentaries. A lot of times they're commentaries, they're stories from the Torah retold in a completely different way. And as they read this Midrash, they're like, oh, wow, I didn't know this about Abraham. I didn't know that about Abraham. And I'm selling, saying to everyone, like, well, Abraham didn't know this about Abraham because it's a story that was made up in 5th century or 6th century or whatever. You know? The truth is that this is a rabbinic story. And the point of it is not to give you historical facts about the life of Abraham, but to give you some sort of insight into something that happened in his life that really, truly I heard kind of like secret behind the curtain knowledge. That's not, not what Midrash is. Midrash is just a way for me to engage you and bring you into a story. It's a lot of Midrashic commentaries like that. And I think it's really important for students to realize that you're not getting any kind of secret knowledge or, or background information that's not available to the readers of the Bible, by the way. <laughs> Only in Midrash will you find this. Like, no, it's these are stories. They're beautiful illustrations. And they're very creative. And rabbis take a lot of liberty with that because the point of Midrash is that underlining teaching. It's getting you to understand the principle, not really give you rules for exposition or anything like that, because they're very creative with that. And so you'll see that in Mishnah, you'll see that in Gemara, and then you'll see that go on into Jewish tradition even today. That, again, so important to the study of genre and being able to recognize genre, right? It changes so much about how we read certain text. I love the fact that you point out that even Abraham didn't know these stories about himself. It it helps us frame what we're trying to get out of that piece of literature, which is so important as students of any text to be able to do. Yep, very important. Yeah, I'm going to throw in one more term, which would be halaha. Can you explain what that is and how it's different from midrash? Okay. Halakha, there's, by the way, Midrash can be classified as different kinds of Midrash. And one of the varieties of Midrash is Halakhic Midrash, which Halakha focuses on the way you follow a commandment, the way you live out Torah, essentially. Torah gives us these teachings, it gives us commandments, and it tells us, do this, don't do that. A lot of times it doesn't give us instruction that's beyond that, just do it. It doesn't say how to do it, how often to do it, in which cases not to do it. There's so much more that the rabbis get into, you know, because like, well, what if it's a holiday? Then how do I do it during the holiday? You know, if I'm supposed to follow this rule this way, that way. So there's so many questions. Every time you give a commandment, there's, you know, 100 questions that rise up. Because if I really want to do it right, 
I, I really want to do my best and I want to mess it up. So there's a hundred other questions that rise up on how to do it right. And so this is where the halakha comes in. This is where rabbis essentially establish some of the patterns, some of the ways, some of the principles in which we adhere to certain commandments. So, and you'd see this in, actually in teachings of Jesus as well, where he prioritizes certain commandments. He says, to him, certain commandments are more important than others. And the rabbis as well. There are certain commandments you're actually allowed to break for the sake of other commandments. Maybe a novel teaching for some people, that but yes, uh, like for example, there's a Jewish halacha that came out of the story from the time of the Maccabees. During the time of the Maccabees, the great time of persecution where a lot of Jews were slaughtered in the middle of these wars. Why were they killed? Because they did not fight on a Sabbath. Pidchas is referring to the time period at the beginning of the Hasmonean Revolt when the Seleucids controlled the lands on the whole eastern side of the Mediterranean. Antiochus IV desecrated the temple in Jerusalem and basically tried to get all the Jews to conform to a Hellenistic way of life. Mattathias's family, who lived down in Modi'in, headed up the Jewish revolt to overthrow the Seleucid oppression and to regain control of Jerusalem and to cleanse and rededicate the temple. It is a dramatic story and amazing. The history can be found in several IBC courses, or you can read about it in Second Maccabees or in the first book of The Jewish Wars by Josephus. So back to what Pinhas was saying. We are talking about halaha and the discussion of certain commandments you can break for the sake of other commandments. Well, at this time, Jews were adamant about keeping the Sabbath, and the Seleucid armies realized that one day a week, the Jews did not fight back when under attack. That was a bad halaha. So the rabbi said, no, 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 we can't do this. This, they will wipe us out completely because they have found out that we want to worship God and we don't want to fight on Shabbat. So they're going to use this and they're going to exploit this until they kill us all. So basically a decision was made that no, we fight on Shabbat. We fight to live another day. We break the commandment of the Sabbath so that we can live another day, so we can continue worshiping God the way we want to when we're free. But right now that we have to defend our lives, we have to do it. So this whole rabbinic teaching came out of this later on on the idea of the priority of life. You're actually allowed to break a whole bunch of commandments to save life. And there's only a handful of commandments you actually can't break to save life. And that's your life, somebody else's life. You could do a lot of things in order to preserve a human life because that's more important because that person goes on another day and they can continue praising God with their life. But if they're gone, they're gone. So that's what halakha is. Halakha is how it comes from verb halak, which means to walk. So you're walking out God's laws, you're living them out. And so there's a whole body of tradition that focuses on just working out the commandments. And you will see this from time to time in some of the teachings of Jesus, where he deals with some of the aspects of the commandments, or of how to do it, or how to do it right, or how to do it better, or what's the proper way of keeping that commandment, or when we're emphasizing one commandment over the other, but it's really not as important and there's a much greater and weightier commandment that's in place here that we're ignoring when we're doing this. And so some of the criticisms Jesus, for example, levels at uh, Pharisees is that they have misplaced the priorities. So he says, well, the famous one, of course, is Korban. For example, Mark 7 says, well, you placed this priority on Korban. And there was this idea of offering your wealth to God, where you're saying, Lord, everything I have, you know, my checking account, it's yours. 
it's it's yours. It's it's there. And and so then it's technically not mine. And then my parents come to me and they say, oh, I really need help. <laughs> We're out of money. We really need to pay these expenses. And I'm like, well, I'd like to pay for your expenses, but you know, I just gave away my checking account to the temple. It's not mine anymore. Like I am still a custodian of it for a few more years, but I've already bequeathed it that, you know, it's not mine. It's technically it's, it's been designated for that use. So I can't give it to you. So Jesus really criticizes Pharisees for that. And he says, look, you've, you've instituted this tradition and now you treat this money this way as it is designated for the temple. But, but the commandment in the Torah says, honor your father and your mother. That's way more important than this tradition that you have. So sometimes we have one commandment coming up against another commandment and one has to take precedence. And so in his ethic, taking care of your parents, which is obviously part of the Ten Commandments right there, honor your father and your mother, it's, it's a big one. He says that's more that should receive more priority than the tradition of dedicating your wealth to God. So that becomes criticism. They argue over this sort of say minutia per se, but it is important from an ethical point of view and from a Jewish legal standpoint. This is halakha. This is the way you figure out how to walk righteously before God. There are calls and decisions that you have to make, and sometimes you argue a bit before you decide what is really the right way to go. What is God's intent? What is his priority versus what we think is important? And so you'll have these conflicts. And rabbis argued about halacha all the time. They disagree with each other all the time. Mishnah is full of examples of rabbis disagreeing with each other in pretty much every commandment and all the details of how to live it out. They don't disagree on the fact that the commandment needs to be kept. They disagree on the how and the way in which it's supposed to be kept. That's halacha. Which I think is such a an exciting thing as as Christians or as people who are unfamiliar with first, second, and third century Jewish context, it's an exciting process to see that when Jesus is arguing with other people, whether it's the Pharisees or the Sadducees, he's doing what everyone is doing. And so instead of demonizing those conversation partners, which we tend to do because we like Jesus, we should see it as almost an intellectual battle. This like, do we do this or do we do this? And we're seeing Jesus's perspective and the other rabbis were not out of place arguing with him. It's just showing mutual respect everyone has for Torah. Exactly. Well, because in the end, what they really want to get to, all of them, the reason why they're passionate and the reason why they argue and the reason why they disagree with each other so vehemently, because the goal is actually a shared goal. We want to figure out what is it that God wants from us and how can we please him the best way that we can. That's really the objective on everyone's mind. That's why they argue so passionately about it. That's why they disagree. That's where the passion comes from is because you, it's not about me being right or you being wrong. It's about us finding the way that is the best way for us to worship God. And, and, and that's always done communally. And it's always done to this sort of, say, exercise of working it out in the middle of an argument. So, yeah, a lot of times people look at arguments and they see it in a very negative light. And I think that maybe it's a very Western thing to do. But for, for Jews to argue is just to have a discussion. <laughs> it's normal. It, it seems as if people are upset at each other, but in reality, they're just working things out and they're passionate about it. They care about the topic a lot. So emotion becomes displayed in a very powerful way. Are there other teaching methods that Jesus used that we can go, oh, look, the other rabbis or other rabbinic material is showing this to you that maybe we just don't realize is a shared 
characteristic between Jesus and other rabbis. So sometimes we look at Jesus's teachings and we're like, wow, you're really exaggerating that point. But is in the exaggeration, is he just fitting within what everyone else is doing? There are a number of techniques. I mean, there's there, of course, there's ah, style of teaching. That's a good word. Yeah. Techniques is what I'm was what I'm thinking about. So Jesus, like all the rabbis of his era, use a technique that we would call literary today hyperbole, an exaggeration. And it's not just an exaggeration, it's an outrageous exaggeration. And this is a cultural feature, by the way. It's not necessarily just even a teaching technique, but if you know Jews, you know that uh, nobody's just hungry. They're starving. (laughs) Nobody's just tired. They're falling apart about to die. So exaggeration and hyperbole is actually a cultural way of expressing how you feel. And so this happens to be a part of teaching in the Gospels. And if you're a very literal person, if you just take words for exactly what they are, you're going to miss the hyperbole. (laughs) You're not going to realize that he's really blowing it out of proportion. He's making it so massive, so gigantic, so that you can't possibly encompass this. And that's the whole point of it. There's a lot of exaggeration, uh, especially in the Gospels, because the Gospels are, a lot of the Gospels are actions and then teachings. So a lot of those teachings are parables. So you, they're already going to be stories that are going to be sometimes exaggerated and very creative. And then on top of it, you have this hyperbole where, you know, poke out your eye or something like that. <laughs> you know, if, if, if your arm offends you, cut it off. <laughs> if your eye makes you, you know, think unclean thoughts, pluck it out. <laughs> I realize that some people probably did take those things quite literally. But that's obviously, to, to a first century audience, it would be very clear that Jesus is just passionate, saying that stop doing what you're doing. You got to do, you got to cut it out somehow. Remove those obstacles from you because if they're going to, move you in trajectory of sin, make radical moves to change that. And, uh, and everybody would have understood that with instead of just plucking out your eye, literally, because you do need your eye for other things. Uh, so <laughs> hyperbole is a very, very common uh, uh, practice in rabbinic teaching. And so Jesus was guilty of that as well. Well, I love it. And in your course, I think you go through five or six different teaching techniques that are shared between Jesus and the rabbis. Methods of interpretation. Yeah, they're, they're all little nuances and you see them in Jewish literature all throughout. But when as you compare the Jewish literature from around about that era to the writings of the Gospels, that's where you start really say, seeing some of the same type of techniques and you, wait, and you say, wait a minute, you know, is this what's happening? Yes, that's probably because, again, these Gospels that we read, they're not written in a vacuum. They're real, true, living, breathing stories of real lives of real people who were living in a real world. So why wouldn't they be using those techniques and those methods? Why wouldn't they be interpreting things the same way that their predecessors were? So that's the idea. Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 CE. And such a catastrophic event must influence how community rules played out. So I asked Pinhas to explain how being a rabbi in the community changed once the temple no longer existed and sacrifices were no longer possible, nor any of the other temple-focused activities. Right. Well, as I, as I was uh, saying earlier, there, this whole idea of a rabbi as a lay leader builds for a little while, and it builds very slowly because the whole time there's a temple, and the temple sacrifices are seen as the way to worship. That is the valid way. And so 
as the temple is destroyed, yes, there's a shift. There's actually a cultural void that the rabbis fill. Essentially, they're there and the priests are not because everything that the priests have had is now destroyed, they're ruined, and is gone. They can't function outside of the temple. They can't set up something else somewhere else and make it work. But the rabbis have developed a way of focusing worship on the text. And that cannot be taken away or destroyed because most of those texts are actually have been memorized. I don't know if you realize this or not, but a lot of people have memorized large portions of Torah in their head. Verses from the prophets, entire chapters are memorized and recited. So you can't take that away. You can take away, you destroy my temple. I can't bring sacrifices. You ruined everything. You took away all the good stuff, all the gold, everything is gone. All those precious items are missing, but guess what? I still have my Torah. I still have my prophets. I have my Psalms and I can sing them pretty much anywhere. And so that idea of creating that type of a worship uh, that is still patterned, by the way, on the temple, but it is without it, it becomes that, that era. You know, it's a, it's a survival time. And there's a lot of consolidation of ideas that happens and many people don't realize they, they I, I hear this all the time, that people think that the Pharisees became the rabbis, you know, or something like that. And they just kind of draw an equal sign. And so there's a lot of studies that have been done to kind of show and to, to, to demonstrate that that simply is not the true. Because, because when we start reading Mishnah, we realize that there are ideas of all sorts that are being incorporated that are non-Pharisaic tra- traditions at all. Pharisees are very dominant among this whole new rabbinic class. But there's still Sadducees being worked in. There are definitely people from priestly background who are coming in and they bring their ideas. And their ideas are being listened to. Sometimes they're not being adhered to so well. Sometimes they're being argued with. And, but they still are given room to speak. And they're given uh, an ability, sort of say, to bring what they have, the best of what they have. And so the rabbis kind of consolidate a number of views together. And the brilliance of it is the fact that they survive because they pull all these things together because they recognize they're going to need each other to survive this, this very difficult time, this destruction. So yes, the prominence of the rabbis, they fill a void that exists after the temple is destroyed. And moving forward, there is a hope of restoration. There's a hope of rebuilding a temple, which is why we have the second revolt, okay? And, and on and on. There's, but And that hope actually doesn't go away for quite a while for many people. But as the hope fades, the new system sits in. And this idea of rabbinic academies, these small schools, where tradition is going to be kept and it's going to be maintained and it's going to be told and retold and then later recorded, that's where we get all the rabbinic literature from, essentially, is these little study circles, these little Bible studies, essentially, these little traditional moments where people say, let's keep this alive, let's keep this going, because if we don't, then it's going to get forgotten. You mentioned at the beginning of that explanation, you said something about the organization of the study or worship was patterned after the temple. What do you mean by that? Well, if you you look at how the synagogue prayers have been structured from the very beginning of the synagogue worship, and we can kind of follow, trace the history, the formalized prayer was structured based on a pattern of the temple, the timing of the prayer. Most Jews pray syncing the timing of their prayer to the timing of the sacrifice of the temple, even today. The entire Jewish prayer book is laid out in with morning prayers, with a morning sacrifice we brought, and then with the afternoon prayers, with 
uh, sacrifice brought in the afternoon, the mincha, and then in the evening, you know, you have the arvit, the mariv, you know, you have that uh, olah that is kept on burning all throughout the night. And so there's certain prayers that people say that actually coincide to the prayers that were said in the temple. It's mimicking the temple worship when the temple still stood. And that was done so on purpose to keep the hope alive that someday things will be restored and we can go back and, and sort of say nobody's going to be completely lost because we haven't abandoned the pattern that was there. So while there's no altar, there's no sacrifices, no actual slaughter, the order of prayers which were being said, the quotations from scriptures which were being used at certain strategic times and certain moments, uh, they are all kept up. So that pattern of worship is actually was preserved. And a lot of rabbis in the Mishnah discuss that. So a lot of the information that we as scholars have about how the temple worship actually went on is because the rabbis keep discussing it. And how do they know? They may live a generation or two removed from the temple. They know it from their rabbi. And that's, again, that oral tradition is continuing to work. They're retelling the stories, how it was in the first century, how was it before that? And they, as far as they can go in their collective cultural memory, they do. To us, it's valuable because we want the peak into that society. And how else are we going to get it? But to the stories of people who were witnesses or people who were telling the stories of witnesses who were there when it actually stood. I love it. And so to learn more, people can just sign up for your course because it's such a great course. And I love the way that you just so expertly introduce people to this vast literature and understanding the world of the rabbis and then how Jesus can be compared and placed among his colleagues. And I think that's just really an exciting course that IBC offers. So thank you for that. You're welcome. I, I honestly struggle with it because there's so much to tell. Sometimes I don't know which, which part I should leave out, and which right. part I should include. And then I have to say, well, I only have so much time to deal with and there's only so much people can absorb. But I think the study of these matters is really open to people. So every course that I do, my hope is to just kind of light the match and see where it takes people. It's up to a person who really wants to study this to stoke that fire and keep it going and, and make it something really meaningful. My job, a lot of times, the way I see it is just kind of get this process started and orient people to something more that's out there that they may not be aware of. Which is why all your students are always like, hey, if that's part one, when are part two, three, four, five, and six coming? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because you effectively light the match and then people get excited and they're, exactly. they're like, let's yeah. keep going on this journey together. <laughs> and, and one of these days they'll understand that you're the one who's supposed to create part two, three, and four. <laughs> I've given you the tools. I've given you what you need. Now take this and learn further. Right. Right. <laughs> Well, thank you for creating time to hang out here at the podcast table and talk about these things. And hopefully people sign up for your course. You're welcome. Thank you. Love that. If you want to enroll in Professor Shear's course, the stories of Jewish Christ among the rabbis, the link in the podcast episode notes will take you to the very first class. You can get this course and many others with one small monthly subscription fee. 
Next week, I dive into the story of Joseph with Dr. Ellie, and he tells us why those final chapters of Genesis really should be called the stories of Jacob's children. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you're listening so that you do not miss out on the conversation. Thank you to Jeremy McDonald with Mason Jar Music for mixing, editing, and crafting all of the good sounds that you hear. And thank you for being curious about the world of the Bible.